0: So I would say there are these two different things, just that there's car sharing. And what car sharing does is it makes a car used more efficiently. And Zipcar is a form of car sharing. And taxis are a form of car sharing. Because we all know the statistic now, your car sits idle 95% of the time. So both taxis and Zipcar are sharing cars that are now being used efficiently. And so with Zipcar, each Zipcar or each each well-used shared car is replacing 12 personal cars. And taxis, if people only use them, they're on the road running and giving people rides instead of them driving their own cars. So they are taking parked cars off the road because car sharing is reducing the amount of parking required. Ride sharing is making, is getting more people in that car. So it's making road space used more efficiently. So that's what I would say. Car sharing makes parking used more efficiently. Ride sharing makes the open road part, the running of your road part used more efficiently.
1: I wanna take a quick time out to give you guys a personal update. Many of you know I've been working on my dream of becoming a sci-fi author. Well, now I've got a couple sci-fi books and techno thrillers coming out soon. Do you want to help me and join my advanced beta reader team and get free or deeply discounted copies of my upcoming books to review and help me improve the stories? If you're a fan of Michael Crichton, Daniel Suarez, a good dystopian, or epic fantasy, you'll love my writing. If you join and share your feedback, it would mean the world for me and my writing career. Seriously, I'd really appreciate it. If you visit mattward.io book and enter your details, then you'll be notified and occasionally selected to pre-read some of my books before everyone else, share your thoughts, work directly with me to help me make the story better, and much more. I want to give you guys an epic thanks for listening to the podcast, especially for folks interested in the books. And again, if you want to get my books before they come out, before anyone, and help me make this writing career a success, please visit mattward.io book to join and get your free early copies. And now... Let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. I'm embarrassed to say this, but on the interview with Robin Chase, one of the most influential entrepreneurs of all time, it didn't click. Zipcar. Zipcar, the car that you can use anywhere when you just need to rent a car for an hour or two. Yes, that's Zipcar. That's Robin Chase. And she's on the program today. She's the founder and former CEO of Zipcar, the largest ride-sharing company in the world. Go Loco, an online ride-sharing community. And the co-founder of Venemium, a company that moves terabytes of data between vehicles in the cloud, i.e. exactly what we're going to need for driverless cars. She's written extensively on the collaborative economy. You guys can check out her book in the show notes, disruptors.fm. And she's on the board of the World Resources Institute, the National Advisory Council for Innovation and Entrepreneurship for the U.S. Department of Commerce, OECD's International Transport Forum Advisory Board. Robin's been named one of time's most influential people, Fast Company's Fast 50 Innovators, and business week's top 10 designers we're dealing with a rock star here with a ton to add when it comes to the conversation around ride sharing everything sharing and where our economy is headed This one was incredibly fun, and in the episode we'll discuss how Robin invented the ride-sharing market almost a decade before Uber, what does the future of urban transit actually look like, and what that means for climate change, why Europe is so far ahead of the U.S. when it comes to livable cities and quality of life, why decentralization is valuable, and why it doesn't always work, how to fix our cities for happier, healthier people, and what Robin really thinks about Lyft and Uber's business models. Hint, she's worried. I know you guys are going to enjoy it, so without further ado, I give you Robin Chase.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So you were one of the first ones into the car sharing space. Do you ever regret not becoming like a nice, positive version of Travis Kalanick?
0: Um, he could not have happened had I not done what I'd done years earlier. So Zipcar, I wrote that business plan in the fall of 99. And when I was out raising money, no one, this is in early 2000, companies, transportation was not a place you innovated. You know, if you innovated in transportation, you're building a car or building a subway. There was no money at all going to transportation. There was no such thing as shared services. People were, couldn't understand, were we a technology company or we were, a, were we a consumer company? And what kind of consumers would ever buy this? No one ever thought about urban things. I mean, it is, I can't, to take you just to put myself back in that space in 2000, 50% of the people had access to the internet, and that was at work. And 25% of the people had access to a cell phone, which was definitely not smart. That was how long ago and how different the time was. And so, he could not have done what we did. And I would say, you could not have done, well, this gives give sidecar credit. Sidecar could never have imagined the people's taxi at that time. People were, transportation was you know, you go by taxi or you go by subway or you own your own car. It, those were the choices. And so the whole idea of, or it's car rental, but the whole idea of having a car for a very small period of time was for an hour or for the day was something that we introduced in the US.
1: I like that you add the context there. 50% of people didn't even have access to the internet. The 25% have- of people with the phones. It's crazy how fast technology is moving.
0: It is crazy. And I feel like that every day now, actually, how we just absorb and move on. So, so if we go back to when Uber, Lyft, Sidecar were founded and coming along, people then and Airbnb were saying, I would never get into a stranger's car. Are you, are you out of your mind? And I was just, I'd say a year and a half ago, I was in Washington and I watched a beautiful young, young African-American woman get into a car with a white male driver and i thought wow that was a stranger you know just a strange first car and i thought wow times have really changed that we can that she can get in with confidence and would do so without blinking um times have really changed
1: what made you go for it for Zipcar? what made you think that was the time
0: uh so i had a co-founder and who had seen this type of thing happen in europe and to put you in she's she's From Berlin, she was home on vacation. She was sitting in a cafe, looked across the street, and saw a shared car. And she came back to the U.S. and said, Robin, what do you think about this? And what I thought about it in the fall of 99 was, oh, my God, this is what wireless is made for. And this is what the Internet will make possible, sharing a very specific resource among lots of people. And this is what I personally want. But what's shocking about that wireless piece is... I had just come back from a business school reunion. I went to MIT and a lot of my cohorts had been starting companies and all the VCs were talking about wireless, wireless, wireless. No one had done anything with wireless. Like the only wireless there was were two applications that were consumer. You could have a wireless radio, like a radio as in listening to music, right? A radio or these beginning cell phones. No one was using, and so I would say Zipcar was wireless application, consumer application number three. And I was so shocked that we had to build everything from scratch, which we did. But it was, it was just the right time, and I was the right person, and Boston was the right place. You know, just, I would say there was a lot of luck. I didn't think hard about which city should I launch this in. It just was, I want to do a startup. This idea really resonates with me. I see how all the pieces are in place to do something. I didn't recognize how revolutionary it was, and I didn't know how hard it was going to be. I mean, you have, you don't have any, I really was an outsider.
1: Those are two of the most important things. You have no idea how bad it's <laughs> exactly. going to be and you have no idea how people exactly. do it, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so I had, you know, my, my investors were constantly trying to get me to get car rental people on board or to have a car rental person run it or. And I'd say, you don't understand. This is nothing like car rental. And car rental guys, they have a different business model. They have a different person they're choosing. This is a different use case. This has nothing to do with car rental. And then I'd say, now car management, that's fleet management. And there's a million people who know how to do fleet management and I'll hire one of them. But car rental was not a model.
1: How do you think about the evolution of the ride sharing and transportation business models up to today?
0: You used a word that as a transportation, now, now I'm a transportation expert. I didn't used to be. Um, That word is a very tricky word. So, what Uber and Lyft do in their day-to-day business, they're taxis. They aren't sharing rides, Yeah, they're, they're
1: not ride right? sharing. I agree. It's, right. a, so it's, it's cheating.
0: Yeah. So, I, I used to argue with them long and hard when they were co-opting this word. And I'd say, you have nothing to do with that word. And there's tax laws written around that word that don't apply to you. But what does strike me, which was really, I'd say maybe it was like 2015, that I was asked by Wired, you know, what was the most amazing thing that happened this year? And the most amazing thing for me, it was 2015, I think, was that through a taxi service, you actually got some ride sharing happening. Like that was a phenomenal, because people have been trying to do ride sharing forever. And I personally had tried to do ride sharing and failed. And we can even go back and say, John Zimmer and I were competitors in 2000 seven, both running ride-sharing companies, real ride-sharing. He was doing Zimride, and I was doing a company called GoLoco. And we were competitors. And after two years, I gave half my investors half their money back, and I said, ride-sharing can't work in the U.S. And he and Logan went on for another six, four years. So they went for six years trying to get it off the ground, and they, too, couldn't make it work. And they sold that. So they raised more money, still couldn't make it work, sold it, and that thing never worked. And then started the idea of Lyft, which I will say was a totally amazing idea, which that they got from sidecar, <laughs> having people drive their own cars as taxis. But they say that, so they served their taxis and then evolved, sort of got sidetracked. But so I really was, what struck me was it required the huge volumes of people that are using these vehicles as taxis. So you have to have origin, destination, timing matches, and the volume of people making demands Making that demand is what's required to make any of those ride sharing matches work. And I had, it was such an oblique entry into real ride sharing that I was completely blown away by that. I thought, wow, I would never, ever have seen that as the doorway to ride sharing. And they did. And I'd say they're still struggling. It depends, you know, on whose numbers you count and wow, we talk about it. I think, I think numbers that they will say is in San Francisco, their first and primary market, 50% of the trips are people ask to share a ride. Now, whether or not they're actually sharing a ride would be a different story, a different statistic. It may be like it's 20% of people that are actually getting shared trips and that's going to be different city to city, but they actually are getting real numbers of people to actually share rides with strangers. So I look at it and I think that it's part of the future. And I think that that is going to be the entry point to getting people comfortable with doing it. And, and having the volumes of people you need to have those origin destination timing matches.
1: And to dive a little deeper, the reason why that matters is taxi companies, like Uber is a taxi company essentially, they mm-hmm. take some cars off the road, but they don't take that many cars off the road if it's still one trip, one person. You've got right. to get to scale of right. multiple so, people.
0: So I would say there are these two different things, just that there's car sharing. And what car sharing does is it makes a car used more efficiently. And Zipcar is a form of car sharing. And taxis are a form of car sharing because we all know the statistic now. Your car sits idle 95% of the time. So both taxis and Zipcar are sharing cars that are now being used efficiently. And so with Zipcar, each Zipcar or each, each well-used sh- shared car is replacing 12 personal cars and taxis. If people only use them, they're on the road running and giving people rides instead of them driving their own cars. So they are taking parked cars off the road. Because car sharing is reducing the amount of parking required. Ride sharing is making, it's getting more people in that car. So it's making road space used more efficiently. So that's what I would say. Car sharing makes parking used more efficiently. Ride sharing makes the open road part, the running of your road part used more efficiently.
1: Do you think car sharing, well, I mean, we've seen Uber and Lyft, they both kind of mm-hmm. IPO'd and have both kind of, they've both kind of pooped a little bit on the IPO. Do you think that they're going to get the business models to work without autonomous driving? Or do you think it's something where it is kind of, what I've seen and my thoughts is it seems to be a race to the bottom because there's so much money willing to play?
0: I was just talking with someone about that this morning. And if, if we look at the existing tax An economic infrastructure we place on cars, meaning we don't charge you for emissions, we don't charge you for congestion, we underprice for parking everywhere. If we keep those, the current status quo where we heavily subsidize personal car ownership, I think they will have a really, labor becomes the number one expense. And so therefore those companies do have competition and they are heavily subsidized so that they match, they come closer to matching me driving my own car. Because my own car is so heavily subsidized. But so in that, I think you're right. I think they need to see an autonomous vehicle future to get that really significant labor costs out of the mix because everything else is underpriced. So I settle that because conversely, another approach, take out autonomous vehicles is to say, let's charge every car on the road. I don't care whether it's a taxi, my personal car, a FedEx delivery truck, a school bus. Let's charge them all accurately for their externalities and their real And their real costs, Um, and that I think will raise the prices of everything else. That labor will become a less significant piece.
1: But it would also make it much less appealing for the drivers to drive. So no, I think they would
0: still drive. They would still they would still be. Why do you say that? They would still be driving. And I think particularly we talked about the ride sharing versus car sharing in this future. There will be a much greater if you put right pricing on things. There is a much greater demand to not own that car of mine that's going to sit ninety five percent of the time because I'm going to be paying for parking. And there's much greater incentive for me to do ride sharing. So there would be a much greater demand for those services because I would have stopped subsidizing personal car transport and made that price what it deserves to be.
1: Do you see that being done in a form of a carbon tax or like Singapore, it costs something many like 60 ways. grand?
0: Many, many ways. <laughs> How would so, you do
1: it? I give you a magic wand. How do we fix transportation right now?
0: Um, my, my dream scenario is... I would like to, right today, change all those taxes that we have, you know, excise tax, tolls, parking. I'd like to change them all to be a per square meter tax. And just, you could just, so that people are starting to think about the size of their car and the space it occupies and how it relates to these assets. So step number one is to get people to think per square yard. And then I would start making people pay for what they should pay. What's coming out of your tailpipe? So if you have a certain kind of car, I want to charge you for that externality. Uh, We should have, we already are suffering from the gas tax, as you know, that has been changed for 20 years. It doesn't come close to paying for our infrastructure. We need to start charging road user fees, as in every mile you drive, you would pay, and you would pay based on the size of your vehicle because it matters. And congestion will start charging you based on the size of the vehicle you charge during congested periods. And when you're parking, I'll charge you per linear foot that you're occupying. And I would charge everybody the same, the same. Even and if,
1: what, a te- even if, let's say Tesla's, a Tesla's the same size as an F-150? Yes, you because, the same?
0: because I will have charged The Tesla will have a lower emissions tax than the F 150.
1: Okay, so we have emissions tax on there as well.
0: Right. And so if we break things out for emissions tax, congestion pricing, road user fees, real curb pricing, now I'm going to start saying, dang, I'm going to take a bike because it's not taking up any space. And I want to see, I'm going to give you a square meter for free because you're human. We're all humans. We actually get a a meter or square yard to walk around in for free. If you want to just take up your allocated space as a human, you go for free, or if, yeah, or if and you then, want to go during uncongested times, you can also go for free.
1: That would be interesting as well to have time-based pricing. And then there's the whole injection of these electric scooters, which seem transformational if we can just have them stop piling up.
0: So, in the realm, so I want to, I want to give you an anecdote. And see if I can do this in a nice way. I was walking down a street in my Cambridge neighborhood, and it was a, it's a medium-sized road, and a. Pedestrians walking to me, and I would say he clearly was mentally disturbed. I want to say that outright. So he is shouting to no one out loud. Those damn bikes! Get those damn bikes off of this sidewalk! And saying it in a much nastier way. And he's screaming and ranting because a, a bicyclist passed on the sidewalk. As he approaches me, there's a crosswalk, and there's an SUV double parked in the crosswalk. He walks right by that car. Right by that car doesn't even. See it. And so I think a lot that we are all experiencing, I would say, car blindness. When people are saying, oh my God, the scooters and their parking or the TNCs and their pickup and drop off. I took my bike to the dentist the other day and my husband tricked me because he sent me to his dentist, which was a 30 minute bike ride downtown Boston. And I would never have done it by bike. I would have gone by subway for sure. He says, oh yeah, just go. So anyway, I did my 30 minutes during rush hour by bike. And there were five cars, I started, decided to count, five cars double parked in the bike lanes where I had them. And they were all people's cars, right? And no one sees those cars. So, so when we think about, um, do I think electric scooters should be riding on sidewalks? Nope. But the larger issue than where electric scooters are parked is all the free parking and the double parking that we, and the space that we give to personal cars. I had this nice statistic that I am memorizing. So on average in cities around the world, about 30% of the public space is donated, is, is is transportation related, right? So streets, sidewalks, parking lots. So 30% is devoted to transportation. 98% of that is given to cars. So when we say those dang electric scooters and their dangerousness, or where are you going to park them? I think, well, let's take away some space from cars and open it up so that we can go use these other cars, other vehicles. And another statistic, I'm sorry, I'm trying to be very fact-based in my analysis of these features, um, is in the U.S., 50% of all trips are less than three miles. That's astounding. So 50% of all trips were less than three miles. If I could get you to take that trip not in your car, what an enormous win for the livability of our streets, your health, climate change, the cost I pay for transportation in my life. And right now, people are too scared and would never consider it because they don't have safe infrastructure. And so we do all of our trips in cars because we've made that the only safe way to get from here to there and have free parking at both ends. And we don't do that for bicycles.
1: How do we change that in the US? So I think part of it is, part of it is societal, but part of it's also structural. I've lived in Europe for a bit. And I love the system there. It's so much better. You don't need a car. You can right. get around. But here, so, it's, t- it's almost impossible from well, some Well, so
0: places. let me pitch you. So this is my pitch. I'm testing this out. So it is true. This is statistical from the National Highway Household Transportation Survey that, as I said, 50% of the trips are less than three miles. If we built that infrastructure out for safe micro transit. So you could go by electric scooter or electric bike or regular bike or by foot. So micro transit lanes in, in those centers. So to and from public schools, to and from schools, to and from shopping centers, to and from hospitals, to and from, you know, major entertainment places. If we had a three mile safe routes around there, people would do those things. So I mean, the word is complete streets. And do we do complete streets everywhere across every highway in America? No. Let's do them where we have population centers that aren't particularly dense, or as I say, around schools. So here's my, so here's my pitch. Do you happen to have any kids? I do. And think of how much of your life is getting your kids to and from places. And so imagine if we had those safe, that safe micro transit infrastructure. And so people between the ages of eight and 16 could get themselves around and have autonomy. Wouldn't your, wouldn't you like to give yourself, your children autonomy? Yes, I would. I would like to give them autonomy. And how about seniors who shouldn't be driving and who are then imprisoned in their houses or they are unsafely driving? We could be giving them autonomy. I think, so I think there's a real pitch for Americans across the whole U.S., not only in big cities, but let's give your kids autonomy. Let's get you out from under having to take them to every blessed place in the world. The number one cause of death for 16 year olds is car accidents. Between the age of 16 and 25, number one cause of death is car accidents. Wouldn't you like to not have that be one of your child's likely ways of dying? Yeah, I I feel like there's a real, I don't even have, yeah, I, I feel like there is a real quality of life improvement. Massive. Without, so I think it is possible. And so I, I don't think it's a guarantee. I mean, I was talking to someone who just drove across Kansas the other day and she said it's just straight cornfields for eight hours. I don't think they have to do a bike lane there. Or maybe we don't need a bike lane layer. In the complete street version, (laughs) you would need a bike lane there. But um, I think we could really improve the quality of life for a lot of people by providing that. How much
1: of the problem is infrastructure and how much of it is cultural perception and also culture? So one of the things, my wife is Swiss. We've lived in Switzerland. There's essentially zero crime. You're an elementary school kid. You walk a mile, a mile and a half to school. Here, I see parents that are driving their kids. A quarter of a mile, an eighth of a mile, because they're terrified of letting their kids outside. And it's not—that's not just the crazy moms.
0: I think you are right that there's a cultural moment, and I would say in the U.S. there are some neighborhoods where it is unsafe for people. C- cities to Cities, are,
1: cities, cities are rough. We have some of the most dangerous in the first world.
0: But in the city that I live in, so it's in Cambridge, in Boston, in New York City, in Washington D.C., probably in San Francisco in Austin, you can have your kids walking without question. You can have your kids walking or taking their bikes that, yeah, I think if we get, if we can get to be fact-based and I realize it's really an emotional piece, but I'm coming back to where we, we kind of started this conversation. If in 2010, I'd say, Hey, do you want to get in a stranger's car and have them drive you someplace like a taxi? You would say no way in hell, like no way in hell am I doing that. And what changed convenience and cost. And so if we can, do those bike lanes. And I can say to my kid, please ride to the swimming pool. And okay, my kid's not going to go, but their best friend does. And then they're going to say, mom, 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 my best friend does. And they've been doing for the last two months and they haven't died. I'm going to say, okay, go because it's convenient for me. <laughs> it's really convenient. It's really cheap. And so I think not everyone has to be the first adopter we listen to first adopters. And those first adopters tell us this isn't a problem. And then we all follow because it isn't a problem.
1: I definitely hope so. I think we can get there. There are some massive changes needed from a climate change perspective in terms of us being able to get there.
0: There was a um, thing I just retweeted yesterday in on Hollywood Boulevard in LA. I'm just saying words out of my mouth. I've never been to Hollywood Boulevard. Don't know LA very well at all. And so I think they must have just had a, they closed down Hollywood Boulevard and opened it only for bicyclists and pedestrians. And the cat, and it was a a little movie of, you know, 15 seconds and it's completely filled with cyclists. And the caption was, people in A don't, people in LA don't ride bikes. They'll never ride bikes. And it's just not true. Why do we drive our car point to point? Because we've given them a great space to drive and to park. And if we did the same thing for these other modes, we would be doing it because it's cheaper, faster, more fun.
1: It's such a better and it's, it's healthier too. Let's face it, we Americans need that. You see, um, I'm, I'm super excited about what I'm seeing in Europe. A lot of cities that are starting to have banned, uh, banned major streets for yeah. vehicles, Berlin, I believe, Spain. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd attribute that to um, C40 did this thing called Green and Healthy Streets. They got a bunch of cities to sign up. And part of the signing up is that they pledged to eliminate cars from their central business districts and also um, have low emission and zero emission zones. So people are fulfilling, these are mayors who are champions and who are bold and who are fulfilling those pledges. And just what strikes me is every time you take away cars, your neighborhood or that street becomes nicer, period. Like every time, every time we take them away, Take away the parking, take away the speed, take away the volume. That place is nicer to be. It's just, so one of the things I actually have a, I'm excited about is. And this was shown really well by my friend Jeanette Sadek Khan in New York City and others before for her, chiming learner in Curitiba, was, let's just pilot it. It's just a pilot. We're just going to, I know you think this isn't going to work and that's going to be really terrible and horrible, but let's just do a pilot and we can fix things around the edges and see how we like it. And when cities do those pilots, and it's just temporary, don't worry, we can change it, people love it. And sure, we do change things because we learn something when we're doing the pilot. But the end result is something that people love and it's just much better. So I feel like we now have this moment. And one of the things I'm, I'm um, intellectually pursuing and every chance I get when I talk to cities I'm trying to get them to do is congestion pricing, which for people listening is when you charge cars an extra fee to drive during peak periods of time. So it's trying to put an added value on travel during those peak periods of time. So you have to make the decision, do I really need to be traveling between 7.30 and 9.30 by car or could I be going outside that window or could I be taking another mode of transport? Could I be
1: carpooling? Like, like Uber Surge.
0: Like Uber Surge. And, and so many cities are thinking about this right now. So the, the status quo, the old-fashioned technology, this happens in London, Stockholm, Milan, and Singapore, was this old-fashioned technology that was modern and new when they did it, which was to put up these cameras and do this license plate recognition, um, gantries. And in London, I think they spent $300 million building it. In Stockholm, they spent $400 million building it. So what's changed is we now all own smartphones. And what is Uber and Lyft? And I want to say Way's navigation, but telling you, here's how much it's going to cost this particular route at this particular time, right? That we can do that charging using smartphones. So I would love to see a city step up and say, we're going to do a congestion pricing pilot using smartphones which means we can do it in two months. Who's not holding a smartphone? Let's just get it done. People would experience it and people would say, hey, this is great. Our city is way better, which is what happened in Stockholm. They said, this is what they all argued about it. They hated it. They tried it for six months. They turned it off and everyone said, oh, wait up. We really did love that. Please put turn it back on. So I think we could be doing congestion pricing pilots with self with smartphones and we could be doing them very quickly and saying, hey, you know what? This is just a pilot. If we don't like it and if everyone, if it's really miserable and makes things worse, We will, we'll turn it off because we won't have invested $300 million or $400 million. This is going to be a small investment. And I think people will see that it's great. And then we should be using that congestion pricing money to pay for improving the quality of more space efficient modes. In other words, paying for the improving public transit, paying for building bike lanes for, yeah. So it would be taking the premium you're paying on going during congested times in a loan in your car and putting that money to make it easier and better and faster to go other more space efficient, fuel efficient, life bettering ways. World
1: bettering as well. I want to get your thoughts on decentralization blockchain, which could be very important for some of these transactional models and where, where you see us headed in that peer to peer decentralized space.
0: So the piece that I love about the blockchain, which took me so many iterations of talking with people to be able to understand one of, I think it's got a couple of beautiful things, but a thing that for me is incredibly beautiful is the, is something I think of as the volunteer coordinator problem, which is we can think about, I'm going down this path here. Let me see if I can get, get this. When we want people to collaborate together, the, that action of getting people to collaborate is incredibly hard and challenging and costs a fortune. So witness Airbnb or Blah Blah Car, which does ride sharing. That sure there was hitchhiking before, but with blah blah car and the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars they spent making that transaction simple, now there's millions of people who do it rather than hundreds of thousands in Europe, for example. So this this volunteer, this coordinator problem, the blockchain incentivizes that platform coordination problem. So, so the mining is effectively doing the heavy lifting of making it work. And I'm getting reimbursed for that. So anyway, that's why I feel like the blockchain is brilliant because it's incentivized the building of the platform, the building, the financial building and sustaining of that coordinating platform. That's one piece about it that I really love that there are very, very few things where we have a built in coordination, that coordinating layer. And so, yes, it's this distributed database. And if you ever want to do things with supply chains, it, the blockchain is great. The piece that I want to throw out there though, that's giving me heartburn. And I was talking to, uh, my friend whose name is eluding me right now at Union Square Ventures
1: is Fred Wilson,
0: not Fred, um, young guy who just became their new young, oh, I feel like I have to Google it. Um, is the amount of energy consumed to do, to do the, do it. And it just is terrorizing to me that I feel like. That's a real downside for me. And it's
1: it's like watching a hot dog eating contest. They're doing it just to do it.
0: Exactly. And at this moment, I don't want us to be doing anything that requires huge amounts of energy to get it done. And so that is now I'm, I'm trying to, I'm having like second thoughts about the blockchain, which I was a huge, huge champion of because it takes the coordinator out. So it really is a democratized platform. And if I think about so we we think about all these sharing platforms, which I think have huge amounts of goodness in them in terms of making resources used more efficiently. They cost not insignificant amounts of money to build those platforms beautifully. And there's the people doing the um, platform cooperativism. And I want to say, God bless and good luck. Like, I'd like to imagine that individuals can build platforms. There is good as the private sector but there's a lot of failure there and who's going to finance all that failure and then as I say to do it right to do it at with the quality at scale requires hundreds of millions of dollars and I don't see individuals and cooperatives stepping up to that kind of money given the volume of failure that is going to have to come out of it.
1: What could be interesting is if Lyft tried to say, "Okay, you know what? Let's try to up, up, surge Uber, so to speak," and Lyft transitioned to a blockchain model where the drivers and riders owned the platform, and Lyft just kept tokens.
0: So that could be so, interesting. So let's talk about that. So that I'm glad you mentioned that. So um, in this book I wrote, Piers Inc, I was trying to analyze on these platforms where is value coming from, and when people are, let's, let's choose. I don't know, so I'm I'm gonna choose Airbnb. And so from when Airbnb first opens its doors from the very first day, And a host gets value out of it because I rent my room out and I get value out of it, right? So they're always getting value out of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't participate. And I think of those guys as the peers. Meanwhile, Airbnb didn't make money for the first rental, didn't make money for the 10th rental, didn't make it for the thousands, didn't make it for the 10,000s, probably didn't make it till they got a million. And yet they're doing this huge amount of investment. So when did they become cash flow breakeven? And when did they become financially breakeven? And so the building of this platform costs huge amounts of money and as I say it's risk capital like that is serious and I think people should be rewarded for taking for investing in risk capital that is not insignificant but so I'm saying hosts are contributing to the value of the company and they're getting reimbursed straight off the top the platform is it and the risk of that takes it should get value but there's a third value which i think is underappreciated and I would say that is the network effect right and so all of these the network effect is incredibly important and right now that network effect which is created by each and every one of us as individuals creating that network, all of that value is going to the platform right now. And so that is true that that platform should not be getting all of that value. It's not that they aren't creating the network effect. It's all the peers that are creating the network effect. And so what is the piece of action that we can give to those peers? And so I don't know whether, I think it might've been Airbnb that is giving, or maybe Uber, some of them, some of them have been saying for some of our hosts, we're giving you some piece of equity. And so it's interesting to me to think of can just like these, these peers who are the collaborating peers on these platforms, they are like employee, like employees used to be and that they are creating value for the company. And just like I would give employee stock options, can I too give these collaborating peers options? Especially a piece if they of don't the get, b-
1: especially if they don't get any type of benefits.
0: And, and that I would say is a larger discussion and depending on which country you live in. But yes. And so I, I'd love us to be able to figure out how we can, how we can share some of the equity value with those peers and, and to be quite honest with ourselves that the peers are not all equal, right? So I drive Uber three times is not the same as the person who's been driving it day, day and night for three years, right? That there's a real, it's, it's a, it's still got to be based on your percent performance within the thing. But I think that would be, I, I feel like there is an equity piece that should be given out to them. And so you were saying with a blockchain, you could do that. Yes, you could do it with a blockchain, but you don't necessarily need to do it with a blockchain, you can do it with anything. But I, I agree with you that they are creating real value. And I think what the value they're creating, in addition to the part that they're getting, otherwise they wouldn't participate, is the network effect. And I mean- that. Go ahead. No, and that has significant value. And
1: the, the thing I thought was interesting is you see one of two approaches. You see people starting a company and trying to build it to something huge. And we've seen an absolute wave of scammy ICOs, unfortunately, oh. with, some, with some real things, but for the most part, founders who couldn't raise funding. What would be interesting is if you could take that startup that became the Airbnb, and then they found the way to build Airbnb into an open source model where they rewarded the people that were the host, they rewarded the users. But then they were also still massively rewarded because of it. Yes. And I don't Well, know that's how. what I'm
0: saying. Well, I, I agree completely with that analysis. So all those scammy ICOs, I think the investors were incredible dopes. So did they think for like one sixteenth of a second? And so A, they were stupid to invest and B, to my point, most startups fail, right? Most startups fail. So there's going to be a whole bunch of failure. And that's why we have to reward risk capital to a different, different way. But I think a startup. What was the guy, there was a startup that was trying to compete in the, that was giving piece of equity for every term. What was it called? I know in, I just remember in Boston, South Station, they once bought advertising for the whole thing. Remember? So every trip they gave drivers a piece of equity. Um, oh,
1: they, they all did something like that. And that's kind of the beauty of it is because you can make it into a Ponzi scheme where everyone wins. But the problem is you have to get to the scale where everyone is actually able to benefit. Otherwise it's just the Ponzi scheme.
0: But you, yeah, well, that was putting a much higher value on those tokens than they really were yeah. worth, right? That And and to the participants, these peers, that's what I think is great about today's system. With the caveat, there's other things that are not great, but each and every person who is driving a Lyft or an Uber or using Airbnb is getting reimbursed in real time. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it, right? So, they are getting a value in real time. Otherwise, they wouldn't participate. Are they doing the math well? It's a different story, but they wouldn't participate if it didn't have a net again. So I think there is this equity piece that what is the value of those tokens? When any startup starts, it's value of zero, right? And so everyone is building that. And then how you divide between the founders, the investors, and the participants, which used to be called employees, is something that could and should be done at the outset, but most of them will fail and some of them will grow to be a big company. But I'd love to see that So that's why I really felt like I had so much love for the blockchain until I was just like Bitcoin numbers. And I just thought, ugh, this energy, energy junkiness of it, this pointless churning.
1: Was climate change one of the things that drove you to ride sharing in the first place? What was the kind of genesis that got you? You're pretty amped. You've done done a ton of things and you've done them well. What was that?
0: Um, I would say from the beginning, in my life, I never wanted to do something that was, that didn't have a social upside. So for example, I would never ever have been the founder of Groupon ever, period. Like there's just zero social benefit to that at all. And I would never have done it. So when I was looking at Zipcar and I used to work in public health. Um, so I was looking at Zipcar, there were real and there were environmental and social benefits and a business model. So I said, great. But if it had only been a business model with no, no social benefits. I wouldn't have wanted to spend my hundred hours a week for years doing it, so I feel like for me personally I'm not interested in spending any of my time for self enrichment and particularly in the climate change world we're living in now, I want to go on a rant and think where do you think you're going to spend that money and with whom and for whom in our, our
1: in our bunkers right in the last perfect
0: exactly I just think what do you think you're doing with that money It's just like no, so I think right now it is an all hands on deck moment and let's Let's talk positively. Can you talk positively for a moment,
1: yeah i I think one of the things that I'm positive and negative about is just the attitude of people that feel as if things are inevitable. You have billionaires, so like, oh my God, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. My billion dollars here. Whatever am I going to do? It's set in stone, and I think that's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. People have the power to change the world So
0: that was a mantra for me building Zipcar, and that I use later is want to build Zipcar way back in 2000. And this whole issue of trust and social attitudes was people would say, how can you trust someone to drive that, you know, $30,000 car when blah, blah, blah. And I would say, most people are good. I believe most people are good and I'm going to find them when they do bad things, but basically the sentence is, I live in and build and create the world I want to live in. I believe and I want to live in a world in which you can trust most people that most people are not jerks. Most people want to do the right thing. Most people do care about how they're going to leave a car or a vehicle for the next person. Most people do care and So that's why I do believe in this collaborative consumption and sharing model. And yes, there are jerks in the world. It's a small percentage of them, and we they make themselves clearly known, and we can penalize them and kick them out and fine them or whatever is required. But most people, and we can build a model on this.
1: We have to. It's it's the incentives. I think most people are good, but the incentives drive people the wrong direction a lot of times.
0: Um. So back to cars, we have designed our cities and our shops and our houses all to make. Car parking in car space, very low cost or zero. So whenever I take my bike to the store or walk to the store, I am subsidizing all those people who drove the store because in that store's overhead costs are the mandatory n number of parking spaces that were built. Or we talk about the high cost of housing. 20% of housing costs is the blasted parking and we require that to be built in. I think you want to reduce housing costs? Get rid of parking minimums. 20% off the top, just straight out. And so I just like those those costs unbundled. So if you want to have, buy parking with your house, great. Your house is $100,000 and your parking is 20000 You know, your rent, your rent is $1,000 a month and parking is an additional two hundred. And people, when they have to make that choice, a huge fraction of people will be saying, I don't want to have that parking space and I don't want to pay for it. So I think we have enough space and we have enough stuff. And we have to reattribute and reallocate how we reapportion and and make better use of that. At some day, yes, we will be hitting up against efficiency efficiencies at the other end. But right now, we are nowhere near that. So I'm not going to worry about that. That yeah.
1: I like it. Let's uh, let's jump back to the interview now. One last thing before we start to wrap things up, and that's. If you had to give people one thing, it can be a quote, a call to action, anything. What would it be and why?
0: Um, I want to go back to the one that we talked about that we actively are building the world we want to live in. And what is the world you want to live in? And for us to focus, focus on that, I've been thinking a lot about um, our consumptive lifestyles and what gives us joy and what gives us joy or happiness or contentment, if you think about it in your life, really are relationship things. And the joy of getting the brand new whatever it is lasts for such a speck of time relative to those other joys. And so as I think about the world that I want us to live in, that I want to create for us to live in, um, I'd like to see us build much more, to think a lot more about that, about community relationship building services as giving us pleasure rather than physical goods giving us our happiness.
1: Moral of the story, stop paying attention to marketing guys. They're trying to sell you garbage. You can have a fun life instead without it. Robin. <laughs> they might be
0: marketing marketing mar- massages. Who knows?
1: They, mar- they might be marketing massages. That is that is true, although not very much here, especially. But Robin, thanks for coming on. Where can people find you, learn more about you, what you do, check out the book, all the good stuff?
0: So on Twitter, I'm at RMChase. Um, the book is Peers Inc. The, my first nonprofit that I co-founded a year and a half ago was called Pneumo, Numo, N-U-M-O, Numo.global, New Urban Mobility Alliance. That's a start.
1: I like it. Let's get around, guys, and let's do it without cars. Thanks for coming today, Robin.
0: It was a pleasure. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Cheers. We'll talk to you guys soon. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the Disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matt If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.